My assignment is to seek to give an introduction to Genesis chapter 1. And as difficult as that may be, I, one of the great difficulties that I face is the temptation to zero in on the first four words. We know enough already about Genesis 1 to know that this is the the accounting of God's creating uh, of all things. Uh, we have, in a sense, and we'll talk about more uh, more about this when we get to Genesis 2, but uh, a, a broad overview in Genesis 1 and a more focused look in Genesis 2. Um, but, you know, the first thing I want us to get is that Genesis 1 begins with God. I'm persuaded that if we could wrap our minds around these first four words, in the beginning, God, we would no longer have any doubts or any struggle with understanding the reality of God's sovereignty over all things. Once there was God and nothing else. There was God and nothing else. There was... uh, there was God and there was nothing else. Everything else after was created by God. Everything else after, if you were to chase back the ontological uh, force vector, and I know that's uh, uh, mixing a metaphor and difficult words, but if you were to chase back the chain of being, eventually it would get back to those first four words in the beginning, God. There was God and nothing else. Just the other day, I had the blessing of speaking about the role and the function of Jesus in the creation. And we're told, uh, of course, that every member of the Trinity had a role to play in the creation. Not that these roles are necessarily clearly and immediately uh, divided or or, uh, or there was no crossover. Uh, but we know that God spoke and reality Happened. I said to the folks I was talking to, you need to grasp the importance of creation ex nihilo, the creation out of nothing. And one of the ways you need to grasp that is you need to understand that God isn't omniscient, that is all-knowing, because he has been a student of the creation. And he has taken in information. When you and I want to learn something, uh, we take in information about the world outside of us through our senses, and we sort of run it through our minds, and we think through things, and that's how we reach conclusions. Not so for God. God is not uh, separate from his creation in the sense that it is apart from him and he has to learn it. Instead, I want us to understand that the creation, everything that's been made, has been made by God's power of his word, that it matches what's in his mind, that God thinks, he speaks, and it is. That is, reality isn't what it is because God figured it out and studied it, but rather what God knows is what reality has to be. 
God made all things. And the next verse tells us that the spirit of God hovered over the deep. We're told that the word was tohu vabohu. Uh, the Greek words meaning formless and void. And the spirit hovered and the language is like a, like a hen sitting on a clutch of eggs, uh, warming them. And, and as the uh, eggs grow and, be, and turn into little chickens, uh, little chicks, that's what the spirit does. There's something else that we miss. I, 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 I think I mentioned uh, in my overview of the book of Genesis that I'm a committed young earth guy. But I think it's a, 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 a ruse of the devil for us to miss what God is trying to tell us when we think that Genesis 1 and 2 was given to us specifically for the purpose of refuting Darwinism. It does refute Darwinism. It is true. Darwinism is false. But when we look at it as that's its function, we miss out on so much. One of the things we miss out on is God's judgment on his own work. God not only makes all things, but he assesses his work. And so with each of the days, we hear God saying, and God saw that it was good. The morning and the evening of the first day. And God saw that it was day. The morning and the evening of the second day. And God saw that it was good. God keeps seeing that his own work is good. Now, this is important because one of the perennial uh, attacks on a biblical view of reality is not just Darwinism, but Gnosticism. And I could spend quite a bit of time talking bad about Gnosticism, but it was an ideology when it reached its sort of peak, uh, probably in the second century AD. Uh, it was starting to become something of a thing uh, when John was writing his epistles. He's dealing with a, a proto-version of Gnosticism. But Gnosticism has a number of different components that make it uh, make up itself as a religion or as an ideology. But the one of the central ones of those ideologies is this idea that the created order, that that which is physical, is bad. Years ago, I was having a conversation uh, explaining to a friend uh, Plato's view of the body and the soul and death. Plato, the Greek philosopher, uh, the student of Socrates and the teacher of Aristotle, uh, held the view that the, that the human body was the prison house of the soul and that the blessing of death was that the, the soul, that which is good and valuable about uh, the mankind, was set free from this prison house. And as I'm explaining this to this friend, uh, our mutual boss was listening in and he came into the conversation. He said, oh, that sounds like the Christian view. Well, yikes. <laughs> what do you do when your boss starts talking heresy? Uh, I had to find a gentle way to say, well, no, that's not the Christian view. But that tells you something about how Gnosticism is still with us. We look at that which is invisible, that which is uh, uh, non-corporeal as good, and that which is physical is bad and dirty. The Gnostics uh, believe that, that the created order was so dirty that God couldn't make it. God had to make a lesser God, and, and that God was too pure to make the world, and so he made a lesser God. And there's like a thousand layers of gods making gods until finally you get down to this 
half God who makes the world. That's nonsense. Which is why God tells us over and over again that God looked at his work, God looked at his creation, and he saw that it was good. One of the key things we're supposed to take out of Genesis 1 is that the created order is God's good work. Now, when we get to the New Testament and we get to the promises of the the, the, summate, the consummation of the kingdom of God, when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Jesus, having brought all things into subjection, having exercised dominion and, and fulfilled the original dominion mandate, he delivers all of the creation up to his father, Genesis 15, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 15. When he does that, He's completed the work because it's good. The created order is good. Our job is to praise God for it, to be thankful for it, to be good stewards of it, to be fruitful and multiply in it. We're supposed to join in with God's celebration of the glory of his work in the created order. Now, I think I mentioned in passing that there's a common view uh, among a certain segment of the evangelical church that notices something mildly poetic about Genesis 1. Uh, One of the ways, one of the principles of sound interpretation is that we're supposed to interpret whatever's written in light of the format in which it is written. You don't take... Uh, the Proverbs and read them as history. You don't take the law and read it as a proverb. You read, you don't take a, an apocalypse and read it as, uh, as history. You gotta, you gotta go with the rules of the format. And so when you come to Genesis and you ask the question, well, is it poetry or is it history? Well, the reality is, is what, as wise as that principle of interpretation is, the truth is there's no hard, fast line between poetry and history, especially when the writer of both is the living God. One of the things that they notice, this is called the framework hypothesis. They notice that there's a parallelism going on in Genesis 1 where God makes uh, a realm and on, on day one, he makes a different realm. On day two, he makes a different realm. On day three, on day four, he goes back to realm one and he fills it. Day five, he goes back to day uh, realm two and he fills it. On day six, he goes back to realm three and he fills it. That's the pattern. That's the framework. And I have no quarrel whatsoever saying, absolutely, that's what God says. And it is poetic. But it doesn't mean it's not true. When God writes poetry, he writes it in three dimensions. He writes it in space and time. He writes it in history. It's one of the reasons why I don't buy into the framework hypothesis, though I do buy into the observation that there's that pattern. Of course there's that pattern. Nothing wrong with that pattern. But it doesn't undo what the text says. Now, God not only makes reality, God not only uh, 
judges reality, which is something else we often miss. Our God is a creator, our God is a judge, and our God is a divider. God separates morning and evening. God separates the dry ground and the water. God separates uh, the, the surface and the sky. He separates these things, and this is setting a pattern for us that's getting ready for what's coming in Genesis 3. Because God's going to separate out his own people from the mass of humanity. He does it. He separates uh, Seth and Cain. Later on, he separates Noah's family and the rest of the world. Then he separates Abraham and his clan from the rest of the world. And then they grow and he separates Israel from the rest of the world. That's his pattern. He divides. He makes distinctions. Well, the last thing I want us to get God not only makes all things, God not only judges all things, God not only divides all things, God not only delights in all things, but God is active in all things. We say in the uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, that catechism given to us by the Westminster Assembly uh, that took place during the Long Parliament back in the 1600s in England, uh, as both political and theological leadership were trying to to reach some level of consensus. I mean, uh, England was a mess in this time period uh, in terms of uh, the Reformation and where they stood. I, I often say, if you lived in those days, you had to like check the newspaper every morning to see whether it was going to rain or whether it was going to be dry. And you also had to check to find out whether you were a Protestant or a Catholic that day because it all depended on who was sitting on the throne. Well, in that assembly, they came together and they just talked about essential uh, or, or basic foundational uh, biblical truths. And one of those things was about God's work. And it described God's works of creation and his providence. God's creation is God's making all things out of nothing. His providence is God governing all things. Both of which reject the deistic mindset. The deist is willing to say, okay, God made the world. He made it like a clock. He wound it up and he left never to return. This is the God of the gaps. What the deists were trying to do in light of Romans chapter one, they were trying to give a rational explanation for the reality of the universe. Unlike the Darwinists, at least the deists had the sense to recognize, Hey, something, someone had to make all this. Uh, but they didn't want to have to answer to the maker. And so they said, well, he, he left. Well, as Christians, as evangelicals, of course, we have to reject that deistic notion. But we have a propensity to tend toward that deistic vision where we see God as transcendent as he is, as exalted and lifted up as he is. But because of that, we deny his imminence. We deny his activity. We deny his nearness. That's not only deistic, it's also, frankly, a little bit Gnostic. God is here. God is involved in the creation. He's interacting with the creation. Yes, he is transcendent over it. Yes, he is distinct from it. He alone has the power of being in himself. That's why the text begins, in the beginning, God. He's there because he is the great I am. He doesn't have a beginning. He doesn't have a creation. He has the power of being in himself, and he speaks everything else into reality. 
So there is a distinction, but it's not a distinction of distance. God stoops down to make the whole world. In Genesis chapter 2, he's going to literally get his hands dirty in the glorious work of the creation of Adam. He's going to get them dirty again when he opens up Adam's side and takes that rib and molds it and shapes it. Oh, my stars, I'm I'm creeping into Genesis chapter 2. Let me stop there. So much glorious truth in Genesis chapter 1 alone. We learn a little bit of the character of God in seeing first that he is transcendent, he is exalted, he is lifted up, he is distinct from all other things. We also see that one of his transcendent qualities is that he is a God who stoops. He is a God who draws near. He is a God who comes to his creation and has a relationship with it. This isn't something I need to worry about stepping on my own toes. It just reminds me in the book of Exodus when when Moses comes before the burning bush and God says, go to Egypt and set my people free. And Moses says, who do I say is sending me? And God gives that sacred, holy name. He says, I am that I am, which does indeed communicate God's self-existent, what theologians call his aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y, his self-existence that he alone has. But that's not all he says to Moses. He gives two names. I am who I am. That's one of them, that transcendent name. But he also has another name given there where God says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That's an imminent name. That's a close name. That's a relational name. Friends, we must never forget that God is God and we are not. And we must always rejoice that God is near, whether we know it or not.